Hi, we're Katie, Jessica, and Shannon, and this is Boy Problems Podcast, a community focused on supporting families navigating substance use disorder. We hope sharing our stories, introducing you to experts, and answering all the questions you have no one else to ask will help you better navigate your story. Through our partners' recoveries, we found each other and formed our own squad, one we know is so valuable to how we manage this disease in our relationships. So we started bringing a microphone to our hangouts to extend our conversations to others just like us. When you're here, you're not alone. If you're listening, you probably know we met at a family support group and our bonds have grown stronger through sharing our stories and supporting each other. When we think about the thing that's helped us most, it's that. So we'd like to extend that community to you. If you're feeling like no one understands what you're dealing with or you're looking for a community of like-minded individuals, consider joining us for our virtual support group. For details, visit recovering2.com. We know what you're going through, and we're here to help. We're recovering, too. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Boy Problems Podcast. We are here with Brandy today. Uh, Brandy, welcome uh, to Boy Problems Podcast. Thank you. Uh, so uh, to give a little bit of a, a backstory on you, Brandy. So I love reels on Instagram and I don't know how you popped up, but you popped up in my reels and I was like, oh my gosh, this woman is so funny. So I was watching a couple of your reels and then something popped up about your childhood and your mother had addiction. And then I was like, oh man, that's sad. And you know, you're funny and it's, you know, 1am and whatever. And so it keeps scrolling. And then again, you posted something else about your childhood and, and it related to, um, you know, growing up and possibly your mother's addiction. I was like, oh man, maybe this woman would be interested in sharing her story with us. Um, reached out. You said, yes, I'm very excited. Um, so then I watched more of your reels and you tell a ton of your story in these little 60 seconds (laughs) and they're like really shitty things that have happened to you, but then somehow (laughs) you twist it into something kind of funny and it makes it, um, it's kind of like disarming, right? So you've been through awful shit, but you've come out, it seems as if you've come out on the other side. And so I'm so excited for you to be here to share um, kind of an experience as a a child who has gone through this with both parents, um, which is what you've said. Um, So I'm really excited for you to be here and thank you for sharing. Yeah, no problem for sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit like you know, I've already said that your parents were both um, addicted, kind of take us back to kind of maybe when you started first realizing what was going on, or did you ever realize it as a kid? Yeah, so both of my parents were addicts. My mom was a teenage uh, pregnancy, and she was pregnant with me while she was in prison. And she struggled with addiction pretty much from the time I was born until to to this day. Uh, She was an alcoholic and pills until when when I was young. And then as I got older it was crack and my dad was freebasing cocaine from the time he was 13 till he was 46 and so I remember when I was six years old the first time my mom spent the night in the drunk tank that was sort of I remember thinking like oh my god my mom's in prison this is it like I'm an orphan and uh, that was sort of the first moment that I realized that it was an issue but by the time I was eight my mom would uh 
get me to go into walking clinics and pretend that I had injuries so that she could get pain meds like that. So, so I kind of knew about the addiction pretty early on in my life. Yeah. Did you know what was happening? Did the people in the clinic ever question you as a kid? Do you remember? Uh, so, yeah. So like I went, my, my mom's, um, superpower was to move all the time. So like I went to 16 different schools growing up. And so anytime, um, you know, eyebrows would be raised or so child protective services would be called, we would end up just moving provinces. So there was one time where we had gone into a walking clinic and she had, um, you know, told me all the symptoms as to what to say for a back injury so that she could get Percocets and the doctor wanted me to go in for surgery. So we ended up moving later that week because obviously I didn't need back surgery. So, uh, yeah. Good thing she didn't put you through the back surgery. <laughs> yeah yeah that's right was your dad around during this time or was it just really so yeah my dad was kind of that part-time dad he worked on the rigs and so I saw him you know once maybe twice a year and sometimes not really at all um and then he lived primarily in Alberta but we lived you know as far north as Alaska as far south as Texas as far west as the island and as far east as Ontario so we were always all over the place and uh we, we were never really super close and then his addiction got really bad in uh, 2003 and um, I didn't talk to him at all for many years and he actually on May 15th he'll be celebrating his Jesus 14 years clean now and so we actually have a wow. really good relationship now uh, but it took I, it was probably until he celebrated his 10 years clean that I just you know it if you've dealt with addicts in your life you know that so much is two steps forward and one step back and in my experiences with my parents it felt like so much of their happiness and stability hinged on their relationships and so uh anytime a relationship would go south uh so would their sobriety so what about other like your your mom or dad's parents or did they have siblings aunts uncles was anybody figure like figuring anything out I mean because obviously if you're moving a lot they probably know something's up too right yeah so so this is such a hard question I guess um my mom's family was came from she my mom came from a lot of um sickness in in, in her own right uh she was the youngest of five uh her older brother who died uh the week I was born, he had been shot. He was um, a biker for the Grim Reapers uh, in Red Deer back in the 80s. And they kind of ran this sort of bike bike gang. And so um, my grandmother was very shady, to say the least. Like when Uncle Alan was shot, my dad said that he was at grandma's house and the man that shot Uncle Alan showed up at grandma's house and dropped something like $30,000 off on the table. So like it was all very sketchy biker, shady things. And so grandma never raised an eyebrow to mom's addiction because she struggled with her own pills and addiction that way. And then my mom got pregnant when she was 17. And there was always a lot of question as to whether my dad was actually my dad or not. So his family was never super involved with me growing up. How did you deal with that like did it just feel normal were you aware of the dysfunction and I guess like how were you coping yeah so I, I always think of like the time when you're growing up as 
as sort of this realm of uncertainty and that you just don't know any better. You just, this is all, you know. And so you just think it's, you think this is how life is. Um, and then it wasn't until you get a little bit older and you start going to friends' houses and, and you realize like, oh, wow, this, this is not, this is not standard. Um, the, and then when I was eight years old, I was in the, I wrote, um, a short story for school about uh, my first time babysitting my newborn brother, which did not go well. Uh, I thought he, he was crying at two in the morning and I thought he had a fever. So I started giving him a, I took his thumb, I took his temperature and it was 98 degrees, which I'm pretty sure is normal, but I panicked and thought he was dying. So then I went to the neighbors and the neighbors were like, why is an eight-year-old babysitting a newborn and it became a whole thing and when I wrote the story and sent it to my teacher uh they called CPS and I my mom sat me down and said like we don't talk about things that go on in the house ever again so then I knew right then that uh you know this is not normal and then in terms of coping I mean I, I mean I as, as a kid I definitely got um depression anxiety um insomnia I got put on medication um and I was on medication from the time I was 12 till I was 18 but in all honesty I I don't think it ever really helped me and I don't think I was diagnosed bipolar but I, I honestly don't believe in my heart that I am bipolar I think so much of it was circumstantial I was I was just a kid in this chaos kind of trying to do the best that I could and um when I was removed from that environment you know, surprisingly, all of those symptoms seem to have subsided. Mm. So you, you mentioned your brother, what, how many siblings, what's that situation? Yeah. So I'm the oldest of five. Um, I, my mom was married a bunch of times. So I'm the only one between my mother and my dad. My mom uh, has another son named Cody from another marriage and then two other kids from a man named Carrie um, Dalton and Lacey I ended up getting custody of both of them when they were teenagers and then I my dad had a daughter with another woman named Lisa you mentioned um like the chaos and all the symptoms kind of like were kind of disappeared once you were removed from the situation how did that how did you become removed from the situation yeah, so I guess it, I guess that kind of makes it sound like oh everything just got better. Uh, um, how did I get removed? So I had gotten taken out of the the situation a couple of times. I don't know if you heard the story, but I was kidnapped when I was four, and uh, CPS came, and so there had been many times where I had been taken out of my mom's. Um, custody and put in with other families when I was 18. Um, that was it. We cut ties. I didn't speak to her anymore. And for the first time in my life, everything was great. And um, for the first time in my life, I, I really hit a, the lowest that I'd ever hit. It was like when you when your mode of living uh, gets stuck on survive for so long, all of a sudden when things are good, you're like, shit, I don't, I don't know how to make this work. And all of a sudden you get to feel all of these things that you never felt before. And so yeah, I, I, I got super depressed and suicidal and ended up, uh, I actually ended up in a mental hospital in Kamloops for, for suicide attempts. And then being there, it was like seeing, I don't know how to say this sensitively, but, but to see actual crazy people, you're like, oh shit, I'm not crazy. I'm sad and that's okay. And that's valid. 
but I'm not crazy, you know? And, and that was kind of the moment where it was like, I, I, I need to choose my thoughts, right? Choose your thoughts because they become your words and your actions and then your character. And uh, you got to choose to be happy. Your story is like remarkable. Um, I'm curious, like as you're telling us, like the, these are obviously kind of highlights or maybe not highlights, but you know, things that, big things that you remember from your childhood, like how do you think as an adult, what is your view like looking back um, at your mother? Like, how do you, what are your feelings towards her now? Like with the, the more mature perspective you have, you're not, you're not eight years old, you know? Right. Um, then what, is, yeah. what is, how do you feel about her and like, and those things that, that happened? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think it's an ever evolving process, right? They say like the what is it, the seven stages of grief, right? Like acceptance and denial and bargaining and all of those things. And, and I think it, I think it's ever evolving and ever changing. And I think at this point, I'm able to look at my mom as, uh, you know, she was a kid raising a kid, uh, doing the best that she could with, uh, sorry, she was a kid raising a kid the best that she could with no support and she had no real guidelines or no nobody to show her what it looked like or what it should have like looked like and then and then she had addiction and she had mental illness on top of that and so I don't know it's it's kind of heartbreaking but I think you know we you know when you're dealing with an addict they always say to meet them where they're at right and um I think I need to meet her where she's at and I need to accept that this is who she is. I think, I think the hardest thing about all of it is that all of society is like, Oh, family's so important. Family, family, family. And you know, it was just mother's day yesterday, right? Those, those days can be hard. Um, but what do you do when your family's fucked up? Right. Uh, I think there comes a point where you have to choose sanity over family. Right. And I don't hate her. I can't because what do they say? Like, hating somebody is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die right but uh I know for my own mental health I can't have her in my life just because she's she's so toxic right yeah so I mean, when oh, go ahead I say when did you kind of come to that realization Brandy um uh unfortunately I'm kind of in a situation similar of where um family might not be in my best interest for my mental health. And so right. for me, this is kind of a new development. And so it has been very difficult. Um, I've had many conversations of how do you, how are you okay with not your family? Right. It's like beaten yeah. in all over the media, your family's everything. It doesn't matter. Somebody screws you over there, your family, it's okay. It's your sister, whatever it may be. Um, how have you worked through that? Because I think that's, that's very, very difficult. Truthfully. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think for myself, um, my 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 biggest guilt was always my brother and sister because I'm ten years old. Sorry, <clears throat> I'm ten years older than Dalton and Lacey, and they're the ones that I ended up taking custody of. So when I left when I was eighteen, they were still just little kids, and I left them in chaos. And doing that, that was the moment where I had to choose sanity over family because. Uh, it was the first day of grade 12. My mom had kicked me out. Uh, 
she had called and threatened. She kicked me out. And then she said that if I didn't come home, um, she was going to give the kids up for adoption. And she was planning on moving back to Red Deer, but we were living in Kamloops at that moment. And because my mom was a high school dropout, my whole thing was like, I need to graduate. I need to graduate. And so uh, first day of grade 12, she says, we're going to, I'm moving away. And if you don't come, I'm putting the kids up for adoption. And it broke my heart but I had to tell her like if that's what you have to do then I guess that's what you have to do because I'm fucking 17 and I I can't raise two kids so that was lesson number one where I realized that if I couldn't take care of me I certainly can't take care of the kids um and then when I was 19 I was living I was staying with an aunt and um I had to go in for another heart surgery and my aunt knew it was my dad's sister and my aunt knew my mom. So my mom, my aunt called my mom and said, look, Granny's going in for heart surgery. If it was my kid, I would want to know. And so my aunt puts my mom on the phone and she was so fucking pissed. She was so angry to have been put in that situation. And that was like this aha moment of like, she doesn't give a fuck. She feels angry that I'm going through all of this. And, and it was just easier to let her go, right? But then that being said, like, I don't think it's such a delicate balance because you can't just cut people out of your life. Right. Like, and I think that like, even with my dad, I'm so grateful that I didn't just cut him out and say, no, never again. You're fuck up. You, you fucked up too many times. Right. Um, that there is that room for growth and, and for changing and, and hopefully getting better. Right. Yeah. I like that you point that out because I think sometimes people see it as such a permanent decision, like the choices that we have to make at certain times, like, oh, if I put up these boundaries or I can't see them now, like I'm never going to see them again. Um, You know, and it, it gives hope. Like you said, your dad, he's made a lot of progress and now your relationship's completely different than what you might've thought it was going to be um, all those years ago. And so it's, I think it's a good reminder of like staying kind of in the moment, like assessing a situation with the information that you have right now and doing the best you can and knowing that, you know, eventually you can like reevaluate and things can change. So, you know, there, there is hope that people can reunite if that is what's best for both, but you may find the way that you're better off taking care of yourself. Absolutely. And even if it's just for a short period of time. So, um, can you talk about the part of where you finally did get your brother and sister, like you got custody of them, like yeah, kind of what so, happened and, and did that help them? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when I was 25, I got arrested for smoking weed outside of the bar that I was working in and, uh, they threw me in the drunk tank overnight and I got out at four in the morning and the girl I was dating at the time was miraculously at my house she was never at my house but for whatever reason she was there that night and she lost her mind on me for not coming home till four in the morning and here I'm like bitch I just spent the night in prison I don't think you understand what I'm going through we get into a huge fight like three hours later out of nowhere my baby sister finds me on Facebook shoots me a message I haven't talked to her in 10 years I hadn't seen her anything and she's living on the streets in Red Deer so we message back and forth the next day I go and we meet at McDonald's we meet at McDonald's and she's it's middle of winter it's November she's got and November in Canada is fucking cold uh 
she's got no shoes, no winter jacket. Um, so I end up just scooping her up and she comes to live with me, but it takes us two or three months to go through here in Canada. It's called kinship care provider. So it's essentially like foster care, but you, it's your family. So they just call it something different. So I had to take all the courses. Um, and then she came and stayed with me. And for my sister, I do think, I think it made all the world of difference. She's Jesus, if I'm going to be 40, she's 30 now. She's got two kids of her own. She's, she's got a good job and a, a little house and she's, she's doing really well for herself. Um, my brother, who's a year older than her, ended up coming after Lacey was there. He had been in a mental, he had been in the Pinoca Mental Institution for suicide attempts. Um, and he came to stay with me, but uh, my mom also suffers from manic depression. Um, and I really believe in my heart that my brother inherited some of those mental illnesses because he's just, uh, I don't know if he'll ever be better. I don't know if he'll ever be okay. Uh, he lived with me for a while and then he ended up getting his teenage girlfriend pregnant and uh, things ended up going bad that way. She, they broke up. Uh, her name is Brianna. Brianna and I have always stayed really close and their daughter Chloe and I have always stayed really close, but Chloe for quite a while hasn't been able to see Dalton. He was homeless for a while. He was in prison, but he uh, refuses to take any medication. So I think this will just be sort of his life. Yeah. And that's, oh man, that's like so hard as the family members when you feel like you can see like, Hey, there's these options, you know, if you took your medicine or try this, um, but it just goes to show that like, we cannot control other people and like, they have to make their own decisions. And then we're just left to accept what that decision is. It's like, 100%. we hope they choose the healthy one and the one that gives them a good life and allows them to be in our life. But the sad reality is that it doesn't always happen. Yeah, Absolutely. Can you talk about Brandy? Um, you mentioned in one of your reels and you also mentioned it uh, to me um, about holding yourself hostage. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah. So I, I think that if, um, I think that if you're a kid that grows up in this kind of chaos, you, you learn to accept that certain things just aren't for you, right? Like, like being in dance classes or extracurricular sports or going to college or, or getting married and having the white picket fence. Like there were just so many things in my life that I just never thought were an option. Like even coming out of high school, I never thought that I would get to go to college. I never realized that there were student loans and all of these opportunities because it was just ingrained in me that I had no value and I had no worth. And, you know, that moment of letting that go. And I really do feel like for so many years, I was just holding myself hostage in this realm of uncertainty that we, I had created in my childhood. Um, that letting go of that and, and, and again, just choosing my thoughts and choosing my own happiness um, opened up a whole new world to me. What was the, um, was there a moment or something where, you know, that kind of clicked for you, like where you realized what you were doing? And then I guess, how do you overcome that when you've been doing something for so long? Changing yeah. the process is hard. <laughs> 
I, I think I think it's every day. I think it's all the time, right? I think that I and, and it's in every facet of your life. I think that if you have toxic parents, so often you end up in toxic relationships. I spent most of my 20s, you know, uh, they say that women often go after men that are like their fathers. And I think I went after women that were emotionally unavailable and were mean to me because I was constantly seeking that affection, you know, subconsciously from my mother. And, um, you know, I've been with my current girlfriend for 14 years and, and meeting Tristan, she's maybe not what I would have typically picked out in a partner up to that point. But I remember choosing Tristan and thinking like, like, this is what fucking healthy looks like. This is, this is what just being okay looks like. And you know, when you're addicted to chaos and that living in that survival mode, just being happy and just being okay is a weird foreign feeling. And, and I think it's still that it's still that every day, right? Tristan's family is so fucking healthy and normal and wonderful that I think, you know, there is still so much of that that's still ingrained in me from a kid that going there feels awkward. It feels weird. Her mom wants to fucking hug me every time I see her but I do it and you just do it, right? You fake it till you make it and eventually it feels comfortable. And, and, and I think that's what life is, is just persistently faking it till you make it and hopefully you end up being the person you want to be. So I'm just so taken by your story. I think I'm just, first of all, just thank you for sharing. Like this is just like something that maybe not a lot of people would feel comfortable sharing. So um, I appreciate you doing that. And then uh, one of my questions is, like, so your, your mom has, it sounds like four children and then your dad had another one, but um, with the children in, the, in this environment, did any of you have your own struggles with addiction or substances or anything like that? Like just being exposed to these things at a very young age, or can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so for, for myself, I think I was blessed in seeing both of my parents' addiction that it scared me enough that I never tried hard drugs because I just knew. Like, I, I think everybody probably thinks their dad is the strongest person on the planet, but I really did think my dad was the strongest person on the planet. And to watch him in throes of uh, freebasing cocaine addiction uh, is one of the scariest, grossest things you, you probably ever see. And, and it was enough to turn me off of ever wanting to try that. Also, I inherited from my dad, a, um, a dislike for alcohol. Like I don't, I I'll have a drink, but it, I could never be an alcoholic. Like I, I, those people that like drink, like doing this all night long, that takes commitment. I, I could never do that. Um, I, I do smoke pot and I smoke a lot of pot and I realize 100% what an addictive personality I have. Uh, Tristan often jokes that my, my um, intensity is both the best and worst thing about me because my obsession, I think it, it makes me a great artist and a good work, woodworker and a writer and all those things because, because I have this need to see things through to fruition. But then that being said, like, I, I also can't start a puzzle because I will be hovering over it naked at four o'clock in the morning looking for pieces because I just can't let things go. Right? And then in terms of my siblings, my brother who struggles with mental addiction or mental illness. He does struggle with addiction off and on. Um, but my baby sister, who I had custody of, Lacey, she, she's, I mean, she's doing pretty good. No real addiction issues. And then my other brother 
he was raised with his dad and he's doing good. And my other sister was raised with her mom. She was really healthy and she's doing really good as well. So can you talk about, you mentioned like the kindness that you've mentioned in general. Can you, can you speak on that? Yeah. Yeah. So actually one of the, um, one of the things in it, so when you're dealing with trauma-informed care, one of the things that they talk about is ACEs. Have you guys looked into this or heard about this at all? Adverse childhood experiences. Um, so I, I took the ACEs test and I aced it. I got 10 out of 10. And that feels like a really fucking bleak analysis. You're like, oh, great. I win heart disease and diabetes and a lack of fucking friends and education and a successful life. But all of that is offset if you have support and healthy outlets and uh, all of these other things. And I was so incredibly blessed. Um, I'm not sure if you guys had seen my story, but I was taken in by an Anglican priest in my grade 12 year. Uh, his, his wife and him took me in. They, I spent, uh, I was on underage social assistance at that time because I had been emancipated and I was giving them $300 a month to live. Um, and when I graduated, they ended up taking all of that money and investing that in art supplies for me and bought me like easels and paint and all of these things. And, you know, really did effectively kind of change the course of my life. Um, so there was them, uh, when this might get a little hokey, but when I was 15, uh, we were living in a motel in Lillooet. Uh, it was the most ghetto motel ever. My little brother and sister were out in the yard and they found a human skull. And we were like, that can't possibly be a human skull. But as it turned out, this motel had been built on an old Indian burial ground. And it was, in fact, a human skull. And during this time, my mom, it, the, the motel was set up with all these little cabins, right? So we're living in this little cabin with three little rooms. And my mom was with her boyfriend in the main room. I'm in a little room and the kids are sharing a room. I end up making it to... Um, provincials for the senior team for basketball, which was a big deal. I was only in grade 10. And um, for the first time in my life, I say a prayer, you know, please, God, let me do good at basketball. And because I had to leave for the weekend and my mom had locked herself in this room with a shotgun and was threatening to kill herself. So every day I'd come home from school and you wouldn't know if you're going to open the store and there was going to be a mess or what. So I pray for the first time in my life, please let us do good at basketball. Please let the kids be okay. And let my mom be okay when we get back. And at my basketball tournament, I, my first game, I get put out, I have my first heart attack, and I end up on the ground. I wake up in the hospital, and my coach comes in, and she's like, Brandy, your mom has moved away. You're going to be living with the wards when we get back to, to uh, Lillooette. Um, but I actually didn't end up going back to Lillooette. I get sent to Vancouver for heart surgery, and my Foster mom, Jackie Ward, ended up meeting me there. So it was kind of the first time I really get to know her. She spent uh, quite a few. So I guess we were in Vancouver for two or three weeks. And then we got sent back to Lillooet. And I was in the pediatrics ward there off and on for quite a few months. And Jackie took care of me throughout all of that. Um, And then at the end of grade 10, I got sent back to go live with my mom. And then... Oh, like, I feel like I could, uh, this could be a whole series of the amount of people that have helped me throughout my life. Like, uh, the Murrays were another family that took me in countless times. And uh, yeah, they were just, they're my heart. They, yeah, I've been shown so much kindness by so many people. And I think that's probably why I didn't end up like an addict, like my parents. 
I know you've just told us a little bit of the things and there's just so much to process. And so can't even imagine all of the things that you've had to process and deal with to get to this point. And so I guess I'm just like wondering, like, you know, as we're sitting here looking at you and see you on Instagram and you're like, you know, successful and you are in a healthy relationship and you're like living life, like, like, it just makes me be like, man, how did she, like, how did she get here? Like, cause it could have gone so, so far in the other direction. Um, and so it's just really cool. Like what you've like turned your life into now with like all the odds like stacked against you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. But like I said, I, I do think so much of that. I, I have to attribute to the amount of people that that really helped me out and wanted to see me succeed in life. And and I would be remiss if I if I didn't attribute it to them. Yeah. That reminds me of the idea of, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard like people say like the opposite of addiction is connection. And that idea how sometimes like society's reaction is always to isolate them and shame them and make them feel bad. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily help. Sometimes it drives them deeper into the addiction. And so just, I think, you know, like what you've shown us, like people showing grace and caring for one another and having that connection, um, how much it can do for turning someone's life around. Absolutely. I'm just wondering like how you've gotten to the point where you feel like comfortable sharing all of it and like, you know, telling all your stories openly on, on the reels and TikTok and <laughs> yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So it's so weird. All of it started in last October because I wanted to be able to up my prices $20 in the new year. And so I was like, shit, I better start being active on Instagram so that people know I'm alive because I didn't do anything really on Instagram before that. Um, before you go so then I further, can you maybe do a little bit of plug of up your prices? So you're a tattoo artist. Do you want to? Yes. I'm a tattoo artist in Wetaskiwin, Alberta. Um, I tattoo at Solarium. I charge $140 an hour now. Um, and I am on Instagram as Bandit Incorporated and also on TikTok as Bandit Incorporated. Awesome. We'll include all of those in the notes, but I thought it might be good for people to hear it from you. Yeah, okay, for sure. Carry on. <laughs> so yeah, so I started in October just trying to like do these stupid reels and I was doing the lip syncing and all of that and it was doing nothing and then um I did one for Christmas and it was like this stupid ad where I was just like talking and I was like is your spouse ugly? Do they need tattoos to be more attractive? And it was my reel that did the best. So I was like holy shit, when I just talk, I do way better. So then I told my worst day at work, which is about a middle-aged guy that pissed himself and didn't realize he pissed himself. It was a whole thing. And, and I mean, I, I've been tattooing for 14 years. So I just have lots of crazy stories about clients. I had a, a woman who tattooed her vagina, who kind of tricked me into it. And a woman <laughs> who's talking to imaginary dragons during her tattoo. And so I started telling these stories because they're kind of my, you know, clutch stories that I tell every client. And, um, and they blew up. It was like the the dinosaur, the dragon story all of a sudden had like 3 million views. And 
you know, it's weird when you're saying something to, you know, a tiny microphone where only a thousand people are listening, but when all of a sudden 3 million people are listening, you're like, holy shit, what did I say? And did I mean it? Was I like, I, am I just talking to my ass here? And like, if I have all of a sudden this platform, what do I, what do I want to say on this platform? And, you know, I didn't want to ever come across, like, I really do love my clients. I love my job. I feel like I'm in such a, an amazing position to be able to help people, um, you know, formulate an idea into art and help people through cathartic times. And it's such a great job. And I didn't want to come across like I was making fun of clients or being like, oh, God, look how stupid these fucking guys are. Because life is weird. And and I have so many crazy stories, like my story about my pet hamster Festus. That's another kind of clutch story that I've told so many times. And so I initially started telling kind of my own stories just because they're kind of crazy. And, um, and yeah, I feel like if my, if I had a niche, it would probably be just that like life is super weird. And um, I guess I'd started telling my stories just so that it wouldn't seem like I was only coming after clients or just to kind of speak on how weird all of life is my life included. And then once I started doing that, it seemed like all these people were like, oh my God, thank you for sharing. I'm not alone. And I was finding this tribe and it became, became awesome. Yeah. That's something. Uh, so, um, for quite some time, like a year and a half, uh, the three of us were actually anonymous and didn't share our names or our faces. We had aliases just because of a fear of the stigma and shame. Um, however, we recently came out as who we are and have, been received by a beautiful community of like people who are also stigmatized and feeling ashamed. And it's like, Oh, you went through that. Like you just look like a normal realistic person. Like, thank you for sharing because nobody shares about this awful shit. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really cool. Honestly. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And I think like, you know, I never really realized it, but you know, I have all these like amazing, wonderful friends and people that are in my life now but anytime we start talking and they start talking about like oh yeah when I was a kid and my mom did blah 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 I can never share stories because they're so fucking weird and I don't know if you guys have ever seen Shit's Creek it's a Canadian show but there's a character and every time she says a story they're like it's so out there that everybody feels uncomfortable and I feel like that's me like I can't I can't share my stories because everyone's like, oh my God. So this all of a sudden gave me a chance to be able to share these stories and not feel shame about it. Or like I was trying to dig for sympathy or, you know, poor me and telling the story. It's just, this is my story and it's mine. Like it or hate it, right? Um, I think my last thing is just, you mentioned, we talked about your dad early on. And he's now clean, getting ready to actually celebrate a um, sober birthday. How did, how did you guys um, like rekindle your, reconnect. yeah, reconnect in your relationship? Yeah. So it took a long time. Uh, while, he, while he was in prison, I never once went to see him or write him letters or call him or anything. Um, and even after he got out there, you know, I just, I was so bitter and I was so angry for so long. And there'd been just so many times of, you know, okay, I forgive you. And then you fuck up again. And how do I let you back into my heart? Like, this just feels like, you know, what do they say? The definition of, of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And so it took forever. And in all honesty, it was in my first year of business. When I first started my tattoo business, um, I was struggling and I, I could barely make ends meet. 
And I ended up calling dad and be like, dad, I need a thousand dollars. What are you going to do? Are you going to help me? And he was like, uh, yeah. And then that kind of sparked it. We, um, he ended up, he ended up helping me get the thousand dollars and I ended up paying it off by doing tattoo work on him. And, and then we talk every Sunday now. And, and like I said, though, it was, it was probably until he celebrated his 10 years clean that it, you know, and now he actually works in a treatment center. And I think that made a big difference too, because he, um, he lives and breathes treatment every single day, right? He goes to meetings every single day and uh, he was on the rigs for so long. And I think that that environment just breeds toxicity and addiction um, because there's so much money. And then the, you know, you, you can't smoke weed. So, so many of these guys end up doing Coke and getting into these really nasty addictions. And then the, the oil industry just chews them up and spits them out. Dang. Is that what led him to seek treatment? He was done on the rigs. Uh, so, you know, it was funny cause you had kind of mentioned earlier about how it, it's often that people want to just like isolate people in addiction. Right. And, um, and that's what happened to my dad. He, he had been sort of a high functioning addict for many, many years, you know, till he was until 2003 really. And he, at that point he was at the peak of his career. He was a consultant on the rigs and, um, his ex-wife went to maintenance and he ended up getting his driver's license taken away and then therefore lost his job and then therefore ended up turning to crime and you know that before they took his license they were going to garnish 75 percent of his wages and so it felt like you know why am I going to work for 25 percent and then you take away you know even if I wanted to go to work for 25 percent I can't so um you know not that that's an excuse by any means but it just led him into a, a dark place. And then with no support, uh, it just went further and further down into addiction and, and crime. And yeah. Well, Brandy, thank you so much for thank being you. on with us. I don't think I have been, um, been on the brink of tears. I, I thought this was going to be a difficult podcast. Um, as a mother of two young children, you didn't um, deserve any of that. And I, I wish you the best as you go forward. Your story there's so many other children currently in your situation who have come through this situation and you guys are the innocent bystanders. You know, adults can make choices. You had to stay with your mom. And, and, and I'm so glad that you're able to tell the story and hopefully bring, um, you know, comfort to someone else who hears that all the weird shit that they went through that you also went through. Um, so I really appreciate your story. I guess I just want to say thanks. You know, like I said, I, I never thought when I got into making these reels and, and all of this, that this is kind of where it would come to. And even when I got the call to do the podcast, part of me was like, what the fuck do they want to hear me talk about? Like, what value do I bring to this conversation? But, um, you know, I, I do think, like you said earlier about you guys sharing your story does do so much for so many other people. And I'm really honored to be able to be a part of your guys' community. We're glad to have you as part of it. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. So thank much. you. Thanks for spending time with us. We hope this story has helped you better navigate yours. Don't forget to subscribe so we can meet you here next time. If you enjoyed this episode, spread the love by rating or reviewing. Need more support? Join our online community by visiting us at boyproblemspod.com. Whatever you do, keep coming back.
We're not licensed professionals. We're here to share our lived experience. So take what resonates and leave what doesn't.